You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the seats in front of you. You can find 2 Corinthians 8 on page 967. So this January has been a series of sermons that are one-offs. One-offs in that we're focusing on a particular passage or a topic that doesn't connect with next week. And the purpose of this series has really been to ensure that we as a church that continues to grow, continues to have more people from our community added to us to make sure that we are all on the same page. And this topic in particular, perhaps you've seen it as you look at your notes, is one that I have tended to stay away from. And this is largely due to experiences that I've had in my own life. I remember growing up that my mom and dad taught us about tithing and taught us that we are supposed to tithe. And so when I would get babysitting money or lawn mowing money, it was a duty for us as Terrell kids to give a 10%. And there was value in that because it solicited within me the opportunity to create habits and disciplines. But I didn't fully understand what tithing was. And in fact, I looked around at evangelicalism or proposed evangelicalism and saw so much corruption when it came to tithes and offerings and how leaders handled that giving that was given to them, especially in the area of TV evangelists. And so as I observed that and had those experiences build as a tradition in my life, I tended as a pastor for the first few years to stay away from it because I knew that as soon as I mentioned the word tithe, either people would give it up and leave or you could just see them squirm or the folding of the arms would occur. So I've only preached on it a couple of times in the last 12 plus years, but my efforts in that have been for the purpose of what we do all the time when we open God's Word. And that is answer the question, what does the Bible say about it? Because this topic, just like other topics in our life, should never be about the traditions or about the corruption that we've seen on topics or about scenarios that play out. It should, just like we did last week with sovereignty, anchor in what does the Bible say. And so my goal this morning is to take the topic of tithing and make sure that we're all on the same page to understand what the Bible says about it. And as I've studied and as I've preached on it, I've come to the conclusion that the Bible doesn't focus on tithing as a primary topic. It focuses on it as a secondary topic of the primary topic of stewardship. I'm going to put a definition up on the screen of a steward. Would you write this down? A steward is a person employed to manage another's property. A steward is a person employed to manage another person's property. And friends, I would submit to you that in all topics of our lives, we would do well to run them through the grid of stewardship. So that even the very breath that you're taking right now, so that the very fact that you exist, 
So that reality, such as the place in which you live, the career in which you find yourself, the relationship status in which you find yourself, the, the parenting, the, all of the circumstances and topics of your life should be viewed through the topic of stewardship. They are owned by God. And when those become our lenses through which we look at all of life, there's a transition that takes place from my rights and expectations to bringing our God glory. And if we start with those lenses, I submit to you through the big idea in your notes that when money is viewed with the proper lens, it will be a tool of worship rather than a tool of idolatry. Now, my effort to prove this biblically will use 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, not as what we typically do, where we march verse by verse, phrase through phrase, word by word, but instead a framework, instead a springboard with the goal of understanding what the Bible says biblically about stewarding our finances and then secondarily the giving of tithes and offerings. So let me read the first nine verses of 2 Corinthians 8, and then we'll unpack this topic together. 2 Corinthians 8, these nine verses will give us a great window into the historical context. Paul writes, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Let's pause right there and just fill in some of the blanks. What Paul was saying is that there was a challenge that the Christians in the church in Jerusalem were facing. It was a challenge that was impacting them significantly in the topic of economics and material need. And so what Paul and the missionaries were doing as they went around Asia Minor and through Greece is to share this need with other churches for the purpose of those churches contributing out of their abundance to meet the need of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And what Paul says in the details that he gives, gives us a window into our own context that the Macedonians did not live in Johnson County. And what I mean by that is that this community was not abounding in material possessions. They had what they needed, but they were not lavished upon by economics and by materials. And what Paul says is that these churches didn't just want to give, they begged to give. Verse 3, they gave according to their means, as I can testify. And beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love for you, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, poverty might become rich. Now, I don't know about you, but as I'm reading that and trying to process it in my own context, I find it challenging to understand and then to be able to easily apply what I just read in my own life. And so this passage will provide us a springboard to not only understand God's word, but to equip us to apply it like the Macedonians did. And in order to do that, we'll see five reminders from the scripture Five reminders that will equip us to be wise stewards of what God has entrusted us in the area of tithes and offerings. Number one, remember the model. Remember the model. And we might be tempted after reading this amazing account of churches that gave so generously and even the expectation that the Corinthian church would fulfill what Paul was instructing them to do, that we might think that the model was these churches and that's not the model. Always the model is the principle that we find in verse 9 and that is this, the model is always Christ and the gospel. Would you write that down? The model for everything we are, the model for everything we think, the model for everything we do is always a starting point with Christ and the gospel. Consider the topic of forgiveness. As a biblical counselor, I I find that the topic of forgiveness is often the most polarizing topic that we have to deal with. Because the topic of forgiveness implies offense, doesn't it? And there are lots of life circumstances that are extremely painful when it comes to offense. And I often find in counseling, as our other counselors do, that when someone unpacks tremendous pain and then are given the instruction that God's word has to forgive, that people will often respond by saying, but you don't understand. You don't realize the pain that this person or circumstance has caused. And the reality is, they're right. But if the model for forgiveness was somehow my forgiveness of others, if the model of forgiveness was somehow that individual forgiving others, then we would not have a standard that the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us the standard is Christ and the gospel. Consider Colossians 3.13. As you have been forgiven, forgive others. The model is always Christ and the gospel. The model is not God's promises. The model is not God's provision. The model is always Christ and the gospel. Let's consider Christ and the gospel when it comes to giving. Would you turn over to Romans chapter 10? Romans chapter 10 and verse 12, Paul is reminding the church in Rome the significance of the gospel, but also how it applies practically. Most likely at the time of Paul's writing, the church in Rome was primarily made up of Gentiles, but it had not always been that. 
As we look at Acts and we see the history of archaeology, we can stand on good foundation to believe that the church in Rome was primarily Jewish in origin. But in AD 49, when Emperor Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome, the church was backfilled by Gentile believers. But by the time of Paul's writing, the Jews were now coming back. And so Paul was writing both about the gospel as well as how the Gentiles and the Jews should function together from God's perspective. And it says in verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. I love that. As I've continued to wrestle over the last few years of who the people of God are, I think these reminders are so helpful because as we think about who would we define as the people of God, perhaps if you've invested in the Old Testament, you would naturally think that the people of God are the nation of Israel. And surely the Old Testament focuses on the nation of Israel extensively. But as the light of the New Testament is turned up, The authors are constantly reminding us that the people of God have never been intended to be defined ethnically. The people of God were never intended to be defined economically or by some other horizontal identity from the beginning of time. The people of God were always intended to be identified by faith alone. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, Paul in Galatians 3.28, Paul in Galatians 3.11, Paul in this passage reminds us that the people of God are always identified by faith, and that levels the playing field, doesn't it? He says in verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all. Look, Look at this, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now just stop and think about it. Who calls on the Lord for salvation? Verse 13, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But the people who call on the Lord to be saved are his enemies. They're the very ones who are living for self. They're very ones who took the design of creation and have rebelled willfully against it. But God decides to lavish upon them generously and richly. What a model that is. And what a reminder this is, beloved, that the starting point for stewardship of our finances is not what others do. It's not what some tradition tells you to do. The model is Christ and the gospel. Which brings me to the second reminder. Remember the motives. Remember of the motives. If you go back to 2 Corinthians 8, you see an interesting word order. Verse 2 says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of finances. Is that what it says? It says their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This is significant. It tells you the motivation of the Macedonians for their giving. And the motive for their giving was not duty. The motive for their giving, listen to this, was not even need. The foundation of the motive for their giving was, write this down, joy. 
That's amazing because Paul says they were in a difficult circumstance themselves. They didn't have a whole lot of extra cash laying around. And yet they were motivated by joy. How does that happen? Well, it happens, beloved, when our motives are in the right place. It happens when we are in a place of reflecting on the gospel first. It happens when we are looking through the lenses of stewardship and not ownership. I invite you to turn over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 is is one of those passages beginning in verse 25 that are easy for us to affirm when we're in Sunday school or in small group and everything is going well. But when we consider the ramifications of what Jesus is actually saying, it drives us back to the importance of motive. Matthew 16, verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now we all know the easy answer to this question, but let's dwell on it for a moment and think about it realistically. How would you respond if in the morning everything that you owned, your health, your wealth, your relationship disappeared? Well, I hope that we would all be able to continue to have joy. But it would be challenging, wouldn't it? Motives drive so much of this. When we are owners before we're stewards, it it changes our whole expectations of tomorrow. It changes our whole processing of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, save my life, must lose it. What's more important, my soul or my possessions? My soul or my comfort? My soul or my guarantee for tomorrow? And as you begin to wrestle with this, you can look practically at your life to be able to take a sounding of where you actually are on this. How do you respond when you drop your phone on concrete? How do you respond when the favorite jeans that you have have a rip? I know, I've, I've actually learned this when I wrote this illustration. Some jeans that are your favorite actually are intended to have rips. I'm talking about the ones that aren't supposed to have rips. How do you respond in your life when you see your neighbor pull into their garage that is an atheist that you know is on a trajectory for an eternity in hell? And as we start processing these practical questions in our lives, it really gets back to the the motive of our heart, doesn't it? And so now when we get back to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we we come to a verse like verses 6 and 7. 
And we begin to see how the topic of giving and tithes and offerings comes back to the motives of our heart. Listen to this, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And so what is the motive that God is looking for? Verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God's expectations for motives with giving are the same with the motives of all of our activities in our lives. He wants us to do them cheerfully, willfully, and intentionally for his glory. That's really what it boils down to. After I preached the first sermon, I just kind of needed to get my mind in a, a worshipful place. Have you ever gone through the motions in your walk with Christ? And thankfully, that wasn't what first service was, but life has been so busy over the last few weeks that for me, pretty much life has been you just do this activity, and then you move on to the next activity, and then you move on to the next activity, and then the next one, and before you know it, you're just in this rhythm of fulfilling activities. And so I needed to get back to a place where what I was going to do for second service was motivated by worship. And I read a devotional, and if you're stuck in a dry place with your walk with Christ, I highly commend this book to you. It's by John Piper, and it's called A Godward Life. And I read his first devotional, which is about two and a half pages. It's a bite-sized portion that was just filled with spiritual steak. And he was reminding me that this activity that I'm doing now, that the activity that you're doing, that the activity of giving, that all activities in our lives should be motivated by a cheerful, willful, intentional love for our God. And and the way that we do that is reminding ourselves of the gospel. Two, Two instructions I would give to you. The first one is, remember that you are slaves of God. Now, now I know when I say that word slaves, as Americans, that is a negative connotation, and and rightfully so when you look at our history. But let's lay aside American history and pick up the biblical definition of slaves. You can write down Romans 6, 21 and 22. Paul reminds us that we were once slaves to our sin. Slaves to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we were willfully doing that. We were enjoying that. We were rebelling against God because we were slaves to our own sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us slaves to him. And in that, there is true freedom. What a glorious privilege that I don't have to be slaves to my own lusts. Do they still pop up? Absolutely. Maybe I'm the only person that experiences that. But I'm not a slave to it. I've been freed through slavery to God. What a privilege it is. What a glorious reality. What, what a glorious new nature and resources are mine through Christ. And when I begin to see that, I, I, I want to, to obey him, which is number two. We, we, we follow his bidding. We follow his instruction. And when it comes to this topic, he says, well, 
If you're a follower of me, I expect you to give. Matthew 10, verse 8. Acts 20, verse 35. So we see that the model is Christ and the gospel. We see that the motive is a joy that is rooted in our gratitude for the gospel and it overflows in a cheerful and intentional and willful expression of giving. Which brings us to number three. Remember the marks. And by mark, what I mean is the the target. What is the target that God says? When he says, I want you to give, I'm asking you to give to what? And as we unpack scripture, I think it falls into two categories. Category number one is to the local church. And we go back to the Old Testament and you can see that as God identified a people, and again, the nation of Israel was intended to be a shadow that pointed to a substance. It was intended in the days of Israel to be a shadow for the nations that observed them to point those nations to God. And it's a purpose as redemptive history unfolded to point people to the substance that is Christ. But we still learn from how God instructed his people and he instructed his people, the nation of Israel, to tithe. They were supposed to tithe, first of all, to the Levites, the tribe of Levi. This was the priestly tribe. This was the tribe that was designated to make sure that all of the ceremonial and and religious and spiritual activity that God expects of his people was administrated by these priests It's interesting that as God gave out the land as an inheritance to the 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi was not given any land. And I think one of the reasons for that is to model the need and the importance of giving. So that for these people in the tribe of Levi to be able to have a place to live, to be able to have a house, to be able to administrate all of the priestly duties, they were dependent on the giving of God's people. Now, as we arrive at the New Testament, it's interesting that in the time of Jesus, Jesus, the 10% tithe was still in place. Jesus gave tithes. His disciples gave tithes. But you start to see in Jesus' teaching a, a transition. He moves from the details to the heart. And the reason for that is because in the days of Jesus, tithing had become an opportunity for people to gloat. In the time of Jesus, people would look at how much they gave as the measure of their spirituality. In fact, we see this in the widow's giving. Remember when we studied that in Mark? Jesus was ultimately criticizing the religious leaders for focusing on the quantity and the details of giving giving, rather than the expression of a worshipful heart. And so Jesus steers away from details and focuses more on the heart. But listen to this. He does not remove the expectation of tithing. As you look at this and you see how does this all play out, well, it plays out through, I think, Matthew 5.17. And what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount is he's saying, look, I'm taking the Old Testament shadow that you've been studying for generations, Israel, and I'm actually telling you the purpose that those shadows were serving. 
And so whether it's the Sabbath, whether it's the festivals, whether it's tithing, I'm, I'm showing you the purpose of that, and the purpose of it is Christ. He did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He didn't come to abolish them, but to show their purpose. That's what that verse means. And so in doing that, he actually takes the Old Testament principles and he raises them. Because the tendency for human beings when we have religious duty is to do the duty for the duty purposes rather than for the ultimate principle that they are intended to convey. The religious duties and ceremonies of the Old Testament were never intended to be boxes to be checked, but to be expressions of worship. And that's where we find ourselves as we come into the New Testament. And so as the authors of the New Testament expounded upon Jesus' teaching on giving, they stayed away from the details and the rigors of percentages as well and continued to focus on the heart. So practically, how would I say this should apply to our lives? Well, I think a great starting point is 10%. If God expected his people in the Old Testament to give 10%, I I think that's a great starting point. It's not the letter of the law, but I think that's a good starting point if you're looking for somewhere. But I think following after the Sermon on the Mount, I think we should also be open to doing even more. But not so that we can ask one another, how much are you giving? How much am I giving? And look at the statement that comes out at the end of the year and say, wow, that's a significant number but to instead say, God, you have given me so much and I am so grateful. I am gonna contribute to your work through the local church as an expression of my worship. Mark number one is the local church, but mark number two is those in need. Now listen, in the 20th century, there was a movement called the social gospel. It was a movement, I believe, that started in the right place by looking around at our society and seeing so many people in need. Seeing so many physical and material needs not being met. But what ended up happening is people began to misunderstand what the Bible says when it comes to people in need. And what ended up happening is people started contributing in an easy, measurable way without understanding what God's goal is in our meeting of people's needs. Listen to what Tim Challey says. He says, humans are so multifaceted, we need to have a multifaceted view of poverty alleviation. The authors of the book, When Helping Hurts, expound upon that. When they said this, and the quote will be up on the screen, one of the biggest mistakes the North American churches make is applying relief to situations in which rehabilitation or development is the appropriate intervention. I have no doubt that people in the social gospel movement have compassion for those in need. I have no doubt that there are so many generous people in our church who have compassion to those that are in need. But let's understand what the Bible says about the focus and the purpose of giving to those in need. The focus is primarily the people of God. We can do good to all people, but especially to those who are the household of faith. But the purpose of it is not to give the villager a fish, but to teach them how to fish. That was always the point of the biblical focus on generosity. 
The biblical focus on generosity to those in need in the Old Testament wasn't to set up this ongoing dependence on the government. It was always to help people get to a place of triaging their needs so that they could get their feet on the ground so then that they could be helped and built up to be able to function in society so that then they could contribute to people who are in need. And friends, we have a church that by God's grace is doing so well in both of these marks. So this message is not a rebuke, beloved. Please hear me. This message is not to a church that is not tithing. So many of you are. This message isn't to a church that is not generous to those that are in need. So many of you are. This purpose of this message is to ensure that as we are doing this, to excel still more in a biblical way. To make sure that our tithing or those that are not tithing see what the Bible says and follows it. Those who are giving to those who are in need or that are not doing it, see what the Bible says and then do it. We are reminded of the model. We are reminded also of the motives. We are reminded of the marks. But number four, remember the methods. And there are two methods especially as we unpack the New Testament, the two methods are the tithe and free will offering. I've spent a lot of time explaining the tithe, so I won't spend as much time in that. It's an expression of worship. There also might be times, 2 Corinthians 8 says, where the season of our life requires that we don't tithe. Isn't that interesting? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 13, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. The point that he's making is God never intends us to give in such a way where now we don't have anything. But I would submit this to you on the foundation of scripture if you are in a season that you think you should not be tithing get counsel as americans we often make these decisions in isolation we often make these decisions with autonomy but beloved the the local church is a resource for you to ask a godly person because it's so easy for us to take american information and American logic and apply it to biblical principles and then not fulfill what God expects of us. So one method is the tithe, but a second method is free will offerings. This is above and beyond your discipline of tithing. I believe the Old and New Testament expects tithing to be a spiritual discipline just like daily reading God's word, just like prayer, just like when it's responsible and required to fast. So God expects tithing to be part of our spiritual disciplines, but then free will is above and beyond that. Free will is also not limited to finances. 
As we look at the scriptures, we see that free will offerings also included time and talents. And I'm looking out on this congregation and I see faces of you who have done just this in the area of talents and time. We've had people in our church that need help at their homes and need maintenance at their homes. And many of you have stepped up, taken time away from family, taken time outside of your work day to be able to contribute your times and talents. There are others of you that have time and talents when it comes to construction and maintenance. And I would just encourage you to reach out to our deacons. They've got a team that they're assembling that comes, and as this building gets older, there are maintenance needs for this building, and they come together in work days. And, and when you do that, that is a free will offering. It's important for us to remember, though, that it is always for the purpose of glorifying God. So as we look at Scripture, we see that we are to remember the model, we are to remember the motives, we are to remember the marks and the methods, but then finally, number five, remember the merits. Remember the merits or the, or the rewards. Glory Copeland is famous for a lot of things, but she's famous for a quote that is tragic. She said this, the giving of tithes and offerings is a great investment in strategy. If you give $100, you'll get 1000 If you get a, give a $10,000, you get $100,000. This is actually a great strategy of investing. That's not the merit that God promises. God promises merits in three categories. Number one, others. Others. Would you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 12? For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. I love that. Friends, when you give to others, it's because others are in need. When you give to the church, it's because the church is in need. And in your giving, those who are blessed by it will give thanks to God for your gift. I am a personal testimony of that. You know, I was in the business world before ministry. And in the business world, you generate revenue through products and services. And there's strategy, there's R&D, there's making the products better, there's research of comp- competitors, there's marketing, there's advertising. It's, I loved it. But often you can look at spreadsheets and you can look at strategies and you can kind of predict what the outcome is going to be, but, but not ministry. That's been tough for me. We don't generate revenue through products or services. We generate revenue by the worship obedience of God's people. And we have staff members that are dependents on that obedience. We have families. We have needs. We have missionaries that are dependent upon that. We have, in order to keep up this building, dependence upon that. We have plans for the future that we believe will advance the kingdom and plant churches and strengthen leaders. And we, we need the giving of God's people and, and when it happens, we give thanksgiving. Our, our family is constantly thanking God for your giving. 
We've been doing this over the last week. We've been doing this throughout the 12 plus years that we've been here. We are constantly thanking our God for you. And there's blessing in that. There's a reward in that. But a second category of reward is you yourself will be rewarded. But let's make sure we define that biblically. Here's the reward that God promises to you when you worshipfully obey. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So it sounds to me like Gloria Gloria Copeland is on to something. But the passage continues. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's the promise. What God promises is that when you obey worshipfully by giving tithes and offerings, he will make sure you have what you need to fulfill his calling. Sally and I are once again a testimony of this. We didn't do a whole lot of things right when we first were married, but we committed to tithe no matter what. And in the 24 plus years we've been married, there have been dry seasons, let me tell you. There have been seasons when as we looked at our budget, we thought, man, that percent could really be used elsewhere. We've had times when the topic has come up with friends or family and they say, wait, 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 you're giving that much to what? But I can tell you this by word of testimony, God has always been faithful. And his faithfulness is not measured by possessions, but in resources to fulfill his calling. And what a gift that is to know that God will give you everything that you need to be generous and to be able to give by your worshipful obedience is a reward. It is merit. It is a blessing. But then a third category is this, God himself. Because what does 2 Corinthians 9 say? The people will give thanksgiving to God. Friends, God enjoys thanksgiving. John Piper has helped me see that so vividly. In the book that I mentioned, also in the other book that is one of my favorites, Desiring God. Oh, I love his book, God's Passion for His Own Glory. that That one's tough. Because as Ben said earlier, I often think, well, God's passionate for my good. But no, God is most passionate for his glory. And Piper and Jonathan Edwards put together an amazing resource to grow our understanding of that. But God loves it when we give him thanks. God loves it when we recognize that this beautiful building that is comfortable right now, that is is dry, that has wonderful technology, that has resources to be able to help you grow in your walk with Christ, this is all because of your giving And we give glory to God for that. What a tremendous merit this is for our worshipful stewardship of what God has entrusted us. So as I close, I hope that this has been an opportunity for us to be on the same page. God expects his people to be stewards, to take care of what God himself owns, 
That includes our finances. The model is Christ and the gospel. The motive is joy and cheer and intentionality and willful. The marks are the church and people who are in need. The methods are tithes and free will offerings. But there is promise of blessing. The thankfulness of others. The supplying of our needs to give and to obey. And the glory that God receives through our obedience.